Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Mention Siberia and many people think of desolation, bleak winters and prisoners in gulags. While that may be true, it's only a part of the story. In this episode, Dr. Matthew Del Santo tells us about one of the world's final travel frontiers. From its awe-inspiring landscapes and unique wildlife, to a cultural kaleidoscope of people and dissidents. Born in Sydney, Matthew now lives in Copenhagen. A writer, historian and foreign affairs commentator with a passion for Russian history and culture, he studied at the University of Sydney and has a PhD in ecclesiastical history from Cambridge University. So we have all these images of Siberia as vast, desolate people doing hard labour there. So what took you there in the first place? Well, I first went to Siberia in connection with the book that um, you know, I'm just about to finish writing, a, a book on you know, Russia's changing attitudes, Russians changing attitudes towards the last imperial family. And as part of that book, I wanted to go to every part of Russia that um, was connected to them, and uh, that includes Siberia. What we mightn't actually realise is that um, Siberia was first really developed at the end of the imperial period. We sort of tend to think of so- Siberia in Soviet terms, um, but uh, it was it was the last two czars who planned the Trans-Siberian Railway, who built the Trans-Siberian Railway, and who first really integrated Siberia into the Russian economy. So for me, to travel across Siberia and try to recapture a sense of what that vast territory was like on, on the verge of the revolution, that, well, that's what took me there in the first place. So it's absolutely huge, isn't it? Oh, it, it's, it, is, it, it is beyond comprehension. What we think of as Siberia, the area from the Ural Mountains uh, all the way across to uh, the Pacific and really all the way across to Alaska, is actually three times the size of Australia. And the Russians divide that into three separate sections, uh, Western Siberia, uh, which is the, the area immediately um, across the Urals, Eastern Siberia, which is, the, which is the vast plateau that stretches from Mongolia all the way up to the Arctic Sea, and then what they call the Russian Far East, um, which is the, you know, the whole literal, the whole coastline from um, Vladivostok right around to Bering Strait across from Alaska. So are they very different? I mean, culturally, those sections Culturally, are not... those, three, those three territories are different, yes. Unsurprisingly, Western Siberia is, is closest in culture and really also in landscape to European Russia. Um, it was colonised first and, and colonised most intensively. And it, this, this is sort of Rasputin's Russia. It was this part of Russia that was doing really, really well in the two decades before the revolution. It was uh, the peasantry there was more, pop, more, was more populous and more prosperous, uh, more prosperous even than uh, than in European Russia, and you know, s- s- people in this part of the world were selling butter in you know it was Siberian butter that was on tables in London and Copenhagen and Paris and wherever else um, uh, in 1913. So it's it, it is sort of distinctively and recognisably Russian. East uh, Eastern Siberia, that this this plateau land that um, I mentioned before, in a sense, it's kind of Russia's Asian face. This is where Russia meets the great civilizations of East Asia. It's where Russia meets Mongolia um, and China, and where you find Russia's um, Buddhist population. Um, it's it's the land of Lake Baikal. Um, it's a land of great natural beauty, um, but as I said, a, a landscape 
that, that clearly wears an Asian face. So you see um, Buddhist temples and, and, and shrines and sort of prayer flags um, hanging from, from, from pine trees and conifers and things like that. So it's very recognisable. And this is the land sort of, of Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan's mother was from a territory that we, you know, is now part of Russia. And then you've got the Russian Far East, which is so far from Moscow that um, is in a sense kind of a world unto itself, um, a world that in summer is not at all connected to our image of, of Siberia, where it's hot and sticky and monsoonal in, in Vladivostok, a land of tigers and, you know, sort of rainforest creatures. Um, but then in, in winter sits under, you know, a, a, um, you know, a mountainous blanket of snow. So do a lot of visitors go there? Increasingly, yes. I mean, I, I still think that it is genuinely kind of one of the world's last travel frontiers. Um, Russians cross the territory, and at least especially the people who have family um, or themselves live in this vast territory, cross it all the time on you know, the famous Trans-Siberian Railway. It's not just a historical relic, it's a working railway. People travel on it to see family. Vast amounts of cargo travel on it. So there's a lot of domestic um, Russian tourism. Um, there's an increasing amount of tourism from North Asia. What we tend to forget is that uh, you know the, uh, the Russian Far East and, and Eastern Siberia sit on the doorstep of three of the world's um, or three of Asia's biggest cities, or four of them, Beijing, Shanghai, Seoul, and, and Tokyo. And this is kind of, in a sense, their backyard. And increasingly, it's being discovered as the place to go and get some fresh air if you're living in Beijing and suffering from, you know, um, the smog. So there's a, there's an increasing amount of Chinese presence, um, tourist presence, and, and, and Korean too, to some extent. So, I mean, before the Russian occupation, there were just numerous indigenous people there. How, did those cultures survive? Um, if you ask a Russian, um, yeah, I'll say they survived. Not only did they survive, they thrived. Of course, the Russians have this sense that you know their imperialism, their colonialism was very different from that of the British or the French because you know they loved the native peoples when they arrived and they did everything they could to protect them. Of course, you have to take all of that with a grain of salt. What is true is that some native peoples, um, in fact, um, did better after the Russian conquest than they were doing beforehand. Others were almost entirely wiped out, partly for the same reasons that accompanied um, colonialism all over the world. You know, suddenly European diseases arrived that people had no immunity to. You know, alcohol arrived um, again, which um, they had no natural, you know, resilience um, towards. So, what's interesting, I think, about the, the Russian Far East from, in, from the point of view of, an, of the indigenous peoples is that you know there are about two hundred thousand population of Siberia is about 200,000 when, when the Russians first arrived, and they arrived um, really as fur trappers. And so the, the Russians conquered Siberia by co-opting the native peoples into their conquest. The Russians didn't go out and trap the fur themselves. They um, sent the native peoples um, out to do that on their behalf. And so the native peoples were an essential element of their conquest, but one you know, against their own will, involuntarily. So can you experience all that still? You can. Um, so uh, one, of the, one of the groups that, that did fairly well out of the Russian conquest were the Buryats. Um, they're the peoples who lived around uh, Lake Baikal. And I say that they did fairly well 
partly because uh, they're, they're, they're basically part of the, the broader Mongolian family of peoples. And so they were already, I suppose they had a more um, sophisticated, more advanced um, society than a lot of the, 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 the peoples who dwelt uh, in the forest and lived the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Um, so they were able to uh, adopt some of the technologies that the, the Russians um, brought with them um, and then became indispensable to the Russians as um, part of you know, a, a police sort of mounties type of force. Um, uh, they were co-opted into, um, by the Russians into defending the empire against the Chinese. Uh, what the period when they really suffered um, the Buryats was under the Soviets when um, you know, for, the, for the Soviets uh, Russia was to be an industrial country, everything was about um, an industrialization. and for a nomadic pastoral people like the Buryats you know, that, that and heavy industry don't go together so they were forcibly settled um, in towns um, they, and, but, but, but rather, than, rather than submit, the Buryats slaughtered or their livestock and so there was this great sort of trauma for the Buryat people um, between sort of being torn away from their traditional lifestyle, their traditional culture. You know, they're, they're, they're a Buddhist people, but, you know, the, the communism was an, athe- was an atheist ideology. So all of that was suppressed too. And so what you find now is, is, um, is, is a restoration, a revival of traditional Buryat culture. The other native peoples, um, they're somewhat more difficult um, to uh, encounter, uh, at least in Siberia itself, because they live in the, in the forest belt, which is a long way from the railway and a long way from those areas that um, where most of the Russian population now is. In the Russian Far East, however, when, when, uh, for example, in Kamchatka, there you live. There you find uh, a society where more recent Russian settlers live much more visibly alongside the original um, indigenous population, and um, their culture is much more visible. Um, uh, a kind of the uh, kind of um, a native peoples culture that you might encounter on, on the west coast of Canada or in Alaska. Very very similar um, sort of cultures in Kamchatka. You know, it's all about it's all about their dogs, their sled dogs. It's all about hunting whales. Um, it's about seals and and so you know you, you can you can today yes definitely experience um, the you know, the native dances the native songs um, of those people in in Russia in Russia's far east. So they're welcome to visitors going and experiencing that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, they're, they're very proud of of their culture and you know they um, they want they want people to see it. Yeah, and and it's I think really moving actually um, to uh, knowing what. Uh, the historical experience of these people and in fact the Russian conquest of the Far East was, was the most brutal uh, Kamchatka was brutally uh, was, was, was brutally conquered um, and to see those people today 200 years later uh, restoring their culture and, and, and uh, displaying it for those people who are interested enough to make, the, to make the effort of going all the way there I think is actually really fascinating so what about the whole Cossack history? Because a lot of the, the towns are founded by Cossacks. That's they? right. Does that's that right. history still survive? It does. It does. Um, yeah, so Siberia was settled by, by Cossack fur traders who were, in a sense, kind of government privateers. They had received um, a permission from the Russian government to go out in search of sable pelts. And they... Quite remarkably, Siberia is almost entirely navigable. There are three great rivers that cross Siberia um, from south to north. Um, and if you use all the tributaries of those rivers, you can essentially navigate from one side um, of Siberia 
almost all the way to the Pacific, and this is what the Cossacks did. And every time they reached a, a place where two rivers came together, you know, the confluence of two rivers, there they would set up a fort. A wooden fort, it, you know, it could be set up um, really only in a, in a matter of months, um, and that would be their stronghold. It would be from that point that they would control, dominate the local the local native peoples, um, send, them to, uh, send them out to trap furs on their behalf. And those forts survived into modern times. All of Russia's, all of Siberia's big cities today began as, 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 as Cossack forts. Generally, those Cossack forts have been lost as, you know, the town has naturally um, developed. But uh, one of the things that you have to give the uh, Russia's Soviet rulers credit for is, is doing something to preserve the past. And so um, in the Soviet time, in the Soviet period, they went out, they found a fort that had been that that had survived, and they brought these forts to the outskirts of of modern Russian cities. So you can go now to designated folk architecture museums and walk through the original gateway of a seventeenth century Russian Cossack fort. Wow, and I mean during Soviet times, we know I mean political prisoners were sent there, mm-hmm. and then later we hear about the Gulags. That's right. I remember reading Solzhenitsyn's novel. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, is there much of that left? Can you see? Gulags, well, um, it's a good question because because the Gulag, I think, is inseparable in most Western people's minds from their image of Siberia, and we imagine um, basically this vast structure of, of a vast infrastructure of, of, of police camps. Um, what is, I suppose, ironic or paradoxical about visiting Siberia today is that almost all of uh, that history um, has been lost. It's very, very difficult to find any traces of the Gulag, partly because um, they tended to be in naturally remote places so that people couldn't escape. And uh, the Gulag, um, as it operated, for example, in some of the works of Zolzhenitsyn or in other Soviet writers, a place called Magadan or Kalima. These are really remote places um, that were colonised by the Gulag as as uranium or gold mines, and so they're not they're not a, they were not part of the the historical Russian opening up of, of Siberia. They're not they're not on the on the Trans Siberian Railway. So you have to make a you know a concerted effort. To go to those places, and and um, so um, no, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to uh, reconnect um, the, or um, well, difficult to connect the image we have of the Gulag with with, with the reality of Siberia today. Yeah. But what about earlier than that? That the Decemberists, right? Yes, so that, that's different, and they did have quite a cultural impact. Absolutely, they? absolutely, and and um, the Decemberists have a really high profile. Um, today in Siberia, they were in fact one of the one of the uh, chapters in Russian history that the Soviet regime celebrated, because these are of course people who s- rebelled against the Tsar uh, a century before the Bolsheviks did. Um, they were unlikely candidates for a, for a kind of um, Soviet celebration, as much as the original Decemberists were were noblemen, aristocrats, um, who. Um, rebelled against um, Tsar Nicholas I in 1825 and demanded basically a kind of British-style constitutional monarchy. Um, For their trouble, you know, they were exiled to Siberia and particularly to the area around Lake Baikal. 
Now, you know, in a sense, really to the Tsar's credit, um, you know, he could have hanged them all. You know, a later Soviet ruler would, wouldn't, wouldn't have tolerated their continued existence for five minutes. But these people were settled in Siberia and in time emancipated. Um, their, their wives were allowed to uh, travel with them. Um, they set up vegetable plots. They set up schools. Their wives brought their libraries, you know, their pianos. Um, you know, these were princesses from St. Petersburg. Um, they brought those things with them to uh, Siberia. And um, in time, as these people were emancipated, as they won their freedom, these families you know, really um, set in motion the cultural life of Siberia. So a place like Irkutsk um, was, you know, at the end of the 19th century, known, known by those who cared to know it as you know, the Paris of Siberia, because you, you had these people who, you know, these noblemen from St. Petersburg who had grown up speaking French, um, who had brought with them the cultural life of St. Petersburg, you know, um, uh, in a small way to Siberia. So there's a museum, isn't there? That's right. There's a museum to, de- to, de- to the Decembrists now in Irkutsk. In fact, there are two of them. Um, Volkonsky House is, is the best known of them. Um, and that's where um, Princess Volkonsky um, lived after following, voluntarily following her husband into exile. And, and Volkonsky might be familiar to some people because the family um, was uh, it was the model for Tolstoy when he came to write War and Peace. The, the Bolkonskis are, are, are modelled on the the actual Volkonskis, who were known for their liberal opinions, a very you know their cultural sophistication and liberal opinions um, in the early nineteenth century. Right. So you mentioned Lake Baikal. That's right. So now that's extraordinary. It's, that's huge as well. Isn't it is. It? That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> Equally large. Yeah. It, it's the world's largest body of fresh water. I think 20% of the world, all the world's fresh water can be found in Lake Baikal. It's the world's uh, oldest lake, it's the world's deepest lake, and it's the world's most voluminous lake. And, and what Lake Baikal is, according to the science, is also fa- scientists is also fascinating. Lake, ba- Lake Baikal seems to be an ocean in formation. It's what happens when two continental plates begin to pull apart from each other. So you have a plate that we might call uh, that, that the Russian Far East now sits on top of, um, and another plate that, that that Eastern Siberia sits on top of, and they're slowly pulling apart. And, and as they pull apart, it fills with you know, rainwater. And so Lake Baikal is, in a sense, an ocean in formation, but one that is remarkably already colonised by seals, you know, wow. um, a thousand, uh, thousands of kilometres from the nearest um, salt water, and there's already a seal population in Lake Baikal, one that's been there for a very long time. And precisely how it got there, scientists still don't know. Wow, how interesting. What about some of the other wildlife that uh, you can see? Well, I think, I think the, the nerpa, which is the Russian word for um, seal, is, you know, sort of what everybody who goes to Baikal wants to see. But the lake is also famous for some other things. I mean, it's famous for some very, very tasty fish. Um, the omel is like a, uh, like a freshwater salmon, um, which is very highly prized in Lake Baikal. And then the other wildlife, well, uh, I suppose to be true, you don't see a lot of other wildlife, but it's sort of standard um, northern, uh, northern European and northern Asian wildlife, bears, um, the forests around by Carla full of bears and, and, and elk um, and, and deer and things like that. It was once the historical range of, of, the, of the Tiberian tiger, but to find that now you have to go um, closer to the Pacific. 
So, so where would you look if you were trying to find the tiger? The tiger? <laughs> yeah. Yes. The Siberian tiger is a bit of a misnomer because in what the Siberians called Siberia, the Siberian tiger is not to be found. You have to go to what the Russians call the, the Russian Far East and you have to go to the small band of territory between, um, if, if, you, if you can picture a map of, of Russia and the Russian-Chinese border, border there, there is a, there's a stretch of territory, a, a kind of a wedge where Russia, where, sorry, where China almost reaches the Pacific but is denied access um, to the Pacific um, by um, kind of a, a wedge of Russian territory that runs down um, the um, the edge of Manchuria, um, and that is kind of that. That's a like a it's a very uh, geographically interesting place in as much as it's a broadleaf boreal forest, almost in summer kind of a rainforest, tropical monsoonal type forest, but in winter. Um, it, it has the appearance of, of like a, um, a Siberian taiga, so it's under snow. And that's where, it's in that very sort of peculiar um, uh, uh, environment that you find the taiga. So what are some of the other things that you'd look for if you were going to do a trip? I mean, I know it's a vast place, so, yeah. but, but where would you head for? Uh, where would you head for? Well, I think that um, you, would, you would definitely do Irkutsk um, because that's where the Cossack... Um, uh, history is most palpable. Lake Baikal, I think, is something that um, is mesmerising in itself. And um, also Ulan Ude, uh, which is just across the border from Mongolia, but which is the capital um, of the Buryat people um, whom I mentioned before. Um, and this is sort of the capital of Russian Buddhism. The, the Buryats are a Buddhist people, so if you want to sort of see Buddhism in a Russian key, this is where you would go. And just as orthodoxy has... Uh, undergone a revival um, across Russia, including in Siberia, since the collapse of communism. So Buddhism has also undergone a revival in this particular corner um, of Russia. The other place that I think no Australian uh, should miss in uh, in Siberia or the Russian Far East is Vladivostok. You know, I think that as Australians, we become increasingly used to thinking of ourselves as part of Asia. But uh, what we tend to forget is that Russia too is part of Asia and, and that Russia's Asia um, extends from Vladivostok um, thousands of kilometres north. It's a, it's a territory almost the same size um, as Australia. But Vladivostok um, sits right on the doorstep of all of Australia's biggest trading partners, you know, China, South Korea, uh, Japan. They're all uh, scarcely more than, you know, an hour's flight from, from Vladivostok. And so uh, one thing that I think um, Australians still really need to do is kind of lift the veil on this vast sort of unknown um, uh, side of Asia, um, side of, of North Asia that, that is, you know, uh, the Russian Far East and Vladivostok um, is its capital. And, and Vladivostok is an interesting place because, you know, from it was one of these sort of boom towns um, of the late imperial period where, you know, in 1917, you know, almost 25% of the population was Chinese and Korean um, and was full of people who had left... Um, Left Russia, left left sort of European Russia for the same reason. A lot of people um, had left Britain for Australia. They'd gone to to make a new life, um, and they were living on a frontier and carving out an entirely new pioneer um, existence for themselves. And then come the revolution comes along, and the city um, is closed to foreigners um, for you know the next seventy years. And only in in the early nineteen nineties is it opened up again. And so Vladivostok today is a city that is kind of um, wears two faces on. 
on, uh, on, on the one hand, it still wears the face of a closed Soviet military city that has been looking in on itself for you know, seven decades. On the other hand, it, it wears the face of you know, a kind of modern um, uh, Russian-Asian city that, that is looking to Beijing, Shanghai, um, Tokyo, uh, where, where you have um, Chinese cruise ships in the harbour and where you have a whole lot of new, inve- uh, new development um, uh, because of you know, Russia's or, or the restoration of Russia's commercial um, relations, relations with North Asia after a break of you know, several generations. Finally, I think that the that you know, the outstanding, you know, the highlight, the 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 gem of, of the Russian Far East is Kamchatka. Um, you know, the original land of ice and fire, a, you know, a land of volcanoes, um, of bears hunting, you know, salmon in pristine um, rivers, um, a place that really does feel like a frontier. And, uh, you know, you fly in, um, land on the airport um, in uh, a place called Petropavlovsk-Kamchatsky, and there there they are. The, 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 the volcanoes just sort of stare you in the face. Um, and this is a place where um, the culture feels... Uh, where, where you feel closest to the indigenous culture, um, as I mentioned before, the uh, Kamchatka was, was very brutally um, colonised by the Russians at the beginning of the 18th century. But since that time, um, partly because of, of its sheer remoteness from uh, the rest of Russia, um, the surviving indigenous people and, 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 and the later Russian colonists have kind of worked out a, you know, a, um, a synergy of, of of sort of Russian and indigenous cultures that's really quite fascinating. Um, so you, you you find people of, of mixed descent who are, are experts, for example, in the local herbs um, and the medicinal prop their medicinal properties. Um, you can find uh, people who can talk very knowledgeably about um, the traditional uh, religious beliefs of, of the native peoples, and you can hear see the na- hear the native peoples themselves perform their traditional songs and um, where. Um, um, Russians and 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 um, native peoples or pe- people uh, of mixed um, descent um, collaborate on this extraordinary culture that revolves around sled dogs. Um, every year they have a race, um, a thousand kilometres long, from one end of Kamchatka to the other, in the middle of winter when the snow is at its deepest, um, and people. You know, these are single single man or single woman teams with 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 a team of ten dogs. Off they go across the snow. Um, uh, they dig their own little igloo every night. Um, they feed the dogs, keep them going. But you know, this is what this is it to for Kamchatkans. You know, what kind of cricket or or um, football <laughs> is to us? You know, the sled dogging, and um, you know, it, it, it's a world unto itself. And I think anybody who goes would find it fascinating. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Joe Litson. Thank you for your company.